0: Hello, and welcome to The Field Guides. I'm Steve, and I'm here with Bill. Good evening, Bill. Good evening, Steve. What we're going to do today, and over the course of many future episodes, is give you the experience of what it's like to be out in the field, in the woods, and on the trail. For every episode, we pick a natural history topic, research the science on that topic, head out to a natural area, and share with you everything we learned. And today, we're bringing you a bonus episode about the Cooper's Hawk, Woo! (laughs) (laughs) cooperiae
1: you should have practiced that
0: (laughs) yeah i know (laughs) and specifically we'll be talking about cooper's hawk biology as it pertains to urban life or at least what i was able to find because it's really hard to get a good comprehensive study or meta study on the cooper's hawk just a lot of little studies i found So what led you to choosing this topic, Steve? Yeah, so I think that now is a great time to mention that this episode is part of a collaboration with the Urban Wildlife Podcast. And while Bill and I are in Buffalo chatting about the Cooper's Hawk, The guys from the Urban Wildlife Podcast will be in the heart of Philadelphia looking for red-tailed hawks. After our episode is over, make sure to give their episode a listen to, and we'll put a link to their podcast in the episode notes so you don't have any excuse not to go check it out. They do a good show. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, one final point of order before we start the episode proper is that you may have noticed that we have fancy artwork for the episode thumbnail. Yeah. So this is the beginning of an ongoing collaboration that we're going to try out with Always Wandering Art. I've been following them on Instagram for a while and we started commenting on each other's posts and one thing led to another and now they're (laughs) letting us use their art for the episode thumbnails. So make sure you guys go check out their Etsy page and show them some support. And as always, we'll have links in the episode description.
1: This is kind of nice. We're getting to that point where uh, we're starting to get people calling and emailing and offering us stuff.
0: Yeah, I know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and
0: uh, halfway through this episode, we're going to try some more stuff That's that someone right. offered us. Yeah. So, uh, nice. so maybe we should head into the woods cause it's kind of, yeah. it's freezing and windy <laughs> and snowing. <laughs> so yeah, while we're walking here,
1: we are at Chestnut Ridge Park, which we've been to before. Uh, it's a County park, about 20 minutes southeast of Buffalo, New York. And we are out on a winter's evening. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though it's officially not winter just yet, almost, we have a good, I would say at least twelve inches of snow on the ground, wouldn't you?
0: Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely.
1: And it is cold, and this is. We were talking before we turned the mic on. This is one of the, the few times we've had to record in, you know, seriously snowy conditions.
0: Yeah, nineteen yeah. degrees out. <laughs> uh, don't have my winter boots on, but let's head into Wilson the trees. I'm... Yeah, yeah. We're
1: getting some mic noise from the wind here. Ooh. Is this Look at work? that tree
0: that's a monster hemlock
1: holy cow
0: that's a hemlock no it's not that's no. a hardwood
1: is it an oak i think it's an oak wow holy cow what is
0: that four five feet in diameter i think the only way we could get our arms around it is if you were on one side of the tree and i was on yeah. the other and maybe our fingertips would touch wow. maybe but it is surrounded by hemlocks yeah, yeah it sure is and it's out competing them in terms yeah. of uh getting the sunlight yeah yeah. All right, back to okay. business. Okay, finally, let's start talking about the Cooper's Hawk. And the first thing that I usually do before researching any specific species that we decide to cover on the podcast is I look through all my relevant field guides. I do that because it's nice to get a general sense for what other naturalists have to say about the species before you really start doing your literature review. For the Cooper's Hawk, I had an Audubon's Guide to Birds of the East, I used Golden's Guide for Birds, The Sibley's Guide, Peterson's Field Guide to Birds. Those first two are garbage. (laughs) And I also used Eastman as well, but Eastman doesn't have a Cooper's Hawk chapter. He has one on the Sharp-Shinned Hawk, and he definitely talks about both of them in that. And I do want to say this to people who are maybe beginning um, birding or identifying plants with field guides. It's always important to read the key to the species accounts in the first few pages because every guide gives the information in a little bit of a different format. So for example, the Sibley field guide gives measurements and averages and uh, they they write in there, it's plus or minus 30% variability for weight and plus or minus 5% variability for body length and wingspan. On the other hand, the Audubon and Peterson, they give their measurements in ranges instead of averages. So sometimes you'll have like, like I had five different guides out and they were all giving <laughs> me different types of information. So it was really hard to kind of combine them all. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, I don't put like a lot of weight in field guides anyway, because uh, they don't cite their sources or anything. So, you know, so there's always that problem. Okay, so now that we got all these qualifiers out of the way, let's get into it. Uh, the Cooper's hawk is a medium-sized occipiter hawk, oh. roughly crow-sized, or I actually read maybe a little slightly smaller. Yeah. From the tip of its beak to the tip of its tail, the males range from 13.8 to 18.1 inches long, and the females range from 16.5 to 19.7 inches long. And notice, the females are larger. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's <laughs> definitely a trend we tend to see with these hawks. And that's, that's generally a rule of thumb with birds of prey. Yeah. In yeah. general,
1: hawks, owls, eagles.
0: Mm-hmm. Girls are bigger. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and just to give Sibley some credit, uh, I'll mention that the mythological average bird is roughly 16.5 inches long. <laughs> Good luck finding that bird in yeah. reality. <laughs> and the Cooper's hawk wingspan ranges from 29.5 to 37 inches long. And I also found this interesting. It's been noted that western birds tend to be smaller than eastern birds. Sounds made up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's true, though. <laughs> well, conditions are quite different, yeah. Depending where
1: you are, so for sure,
0: sure. If anyone listening has ever held a bird, especially a large bird like a hawk or an owl, you'll notice how surprisingly light they are. <laughs> yeah. So, for example, the Cooper's hawk, which is a hawk, it's gonna kind of, you know no matter how small or large a hawk is, hawks are still usually pretty big birds. The males weigh anywhere from point six pounds in the west to point seven pounds in the east, and females weigh anywhere from Point nine seven pounds in the west and 1.3 pounds in the east pretty light yeah yeah it's for such a big thing it's so light yeah. yeah yeah i
1: always feel like i'm crushing the imaginations of my second graders when i tell them you know we'll talk about birds and i'll take them out on hikes and we'll talk about birds and then we'll talk about you know how birds are so light and that's why they can fly and i tell them guys even if you had wings we still couldn't get off the ground. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: That's why I kind of like an X-Men when there's an x Men with wings. They're not, like, flapping like they have to. I think they just, they can fly using psychic powers, and they just happen to the have wings. The wings are for show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, the adults are blue-gray or slate-gray above. Uh, they have a dark cap, and they're finely rust-barred below. Uh, the immature birds are brown above, and they're whitish below with some fine streaking. Brownish streaking, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The Cooper's Hawk has a relatively long head and neck, uh, and it's got short, rounded wings. And it's actually the most slender and longest tail occipiter hawk. That's one uh, good field mark. Yeah. Yeah, Yes, to look for that long tail. Yeah, and speaking of the tail, that's the field mark that I notice the most. It's long and narrow with these thick, horizontal, dark and light bands with a distinct, narrow white band at the tip of the tail. Now, the hawk that pretty much everyone groups the Cooper's Hawk with is... The sharp-shinned. Yep, the sharp-shinned hawk or the Sharpie, Accipiter striatus. They look similar, but the Cooper's hawk will always be larger than the Sharpie, with small male Cooper's hawks and large female Sharpies nearly overlapping in size. So any birder out there that tells you, oh, I know that's a Sharpie, or oh, I know that's a Cooper's, and they're looking through the binoculars, I don't know. I would always say,
1: if you want to agitate a birder, start in on uh, saying you can definitely tell the difference between a sharp-shinned hawk and a cooper's hawk (laughs) and that it's so easy to do because it's really hard. Oh yeah,
0: (laughs) trolling on the birder level. I love it. (laughs)
1: Yeah, it's an ongoing debate about People saying, Oh, I know what a Cooper's hawk looks like. I can tell it apart from a sharp shin.
0: Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Many birders will actually talk about the end of the Cooper's Hawk tail being rounded with the sharp shins being more squared off, but that's not really very reliable. Right. And uh unless
1: you have a bird you know that it's a sharp shin and a bird you know is a Cooper's hawk sitting next to each other. They say,
0: Oh, look at that. Yeah. (laughs) That's like the only way I think. Right. Um works with mounts. yeah. (laughs) So cooper's hawks have a rapid wing beat but i've read that it's a slower stiffer wing beat than the sharp shin hawks and only with experience can you actually use that for identification but i've heard people talk um with some confidence on that but these may be birders that have been at it for 40 years or so or maybe don't know any better
1: and i think we're joking because you know when we do go out with hardcore birders i'm always incredibly impressed and envious of of the skills that they do have
0: oh i I like to consider myself a birder but i'm put to shame every single time i'm out with anyone who uh you know who who takes it a little bit more seriously for sure and there's a lot of people that take it more seriously right bill makes me look bad and then your average buffalo birder (laughs) makes me look bad yeah (laughs) yeah But ultimately, I think the best scenario for distinguishing the two species from each other is if you see a Cooper's hawk eating a (laughs) sharpshin hawk, because Cooper's hawks, along with uh, Northern Harriers and Red-tail hawks and Great-Horned Owls and Peregrine Falcons, they will definitely take Sharpies and not the other way around. (laughs) So if you see, if you can't tell who's eating who, it's a good assumption to think that the Coopers is eating the sharpshin. The sharpshin is the meal. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah, And just to give people another point of reference, like uh, sharpshin shinned hawks are
0: roughly blue jay sized. So these are pretty small hawks. And do you know why it's called a sharp shinned hawk? I don't. It's because its legs are smaller than pencil sized. Okay. So... It almost gives the legs like a sharp look to them when they're bent or something. That's lame. <laughs> yeah, it's really <laughs> weird. Yeah. I, I thought that it was kind of funny. But <laughs> So uh, last in terms of identification is the Cooper's hawk's call. This is sometimes the best way to identify birds, and this is because your sight is pretty limited to your field of view, and also you really don't usually have a clear sight of the birds you're <laughs> yeah. trying to look at. There's usually some obstructions in the way. Uh, but your ears, on the other hand, They can take a whole 360 degrees of information in and uh i mean bill knows birding by ear we have to do when we band birds and definitely yeah yeah like when we do bird counts that's probably what we chiefly rely on oh for sure yeah Yeah. it's like the most useful way to get birds yeah so (laughs) i actually think it's kind of fun to compare how different field guides describe bird vocalizations (laughs) so here's a few in audubon it says and all these are quotes loud cack 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 And that's spelled Cack, C-A-C-K. Golden's Guide says, call a series of 15 to 20 Cacks. Now that's spelled (laughs) (laughs) K-A-K. Sibley, a series of flat nasal barks, peck, 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 at nesting site. Uh, Peterson, about the nest, a rapid Cack, 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 etc. It suggests flicker or pileated woodpecker, or pileated. And Eastman says, not vocal at most times, the bird often utters a series of shrill, cackling notes when alarmed near the nest. Those are surprisingly similar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think for you guys, I'll just insert a clip of the Cooper's Hawks call in post-production uh, unless we stumble across one at its nest right now. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> We're so lucky! In yeah, the winter time too! What's the chance of that happening? <laughs> wow. That's one for the ages. <laughs> yeah, I know time to put it on iBird, or (laughs) iNaturalist, or whatever it is, eBird. That might get flagged. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so let's get into the habitat and distribution. So the Cooper's Hawk is really difficult to explain in terms of the distribution, at least it's hard to explain in words. It's a pretty simple picture, but um, it can be found in most eastern and western states year-round. Its yearly range extends north into British Columbia, up in western Canada, and into the extreme southeast tips of Ontario and Quebec in the east. Uh, They're also found in western Mexico year-round. Now, going off the map in Sibley's Guide to Birds, it looks like Cooper's hawks are actively avoiding Nebraska. I I don't know what it is. But in terms of the breeding season, they migrate just north of Nebraska and as far north as southern Canada. And in the winter, they had just south of Nebraska and go as far south as Costa Rica. Well, can you blame them, really? So (laughs) I I actually read a 2014 study out of Washington in the Journal of Raptor Research, and it looked how native animals were affected by urbanization, and they found that the Cooper's hawks and barred owls showed a positive response to human-altered landscapes. Specifically, they liked the edges between deciduous mixed forests and lawns. We got a lot of those. Yeah, and I say lawns, but what they called it was light-intensity urban land cover. (laughs) And I was like, what's this? (laughs) I was so shocked
1: to find out that they meant lawns. (laughs) It would have been awesome if they could have come up with an acronym that spelled
0: out lawn. (laughs) (laughs) It would have been so good. (laughs) Okay, so like I said, where they do occur, they like woodlots and wood margins. They prefer deciduous forests, but they'll also be found in coniferous forests. They especially like woodland patches and woodlands interrupted by meadows and clearings. Um, And they like to hunt around houses and bird feeders. Though, a 2008 study out of Indiana found no significant use of bird feeders by Cooper's Hawks. That kind of surprised me. Yeah. Because that's a lot of reason why some people didn't like Cooper's Hawks (laughs) all that much. And
1: honestly, I think That's one of the only places I've seen them is around feeders.
0: Yeah, but I guess they're not at bird feeders more often than they're anywhere else. I think that's what the study was saying. All right. So historically, people haven't really liked Cooper's Hawks, especially poultry farmers, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, because they occasionally ate their chickens. Um, but I also read that it's not actually a very common event And that Cooper's hawks also eat other pests That can cause significant damage to farmers' crops So, I don't know It's kind of more or less offset, you know uh, Well, you know, historically
1: People always seem to have biases against birds of prey And things that they viewed Predators,
0: really Oh, for sure, yeah, yeah. So I just want to talk about mating and reproduction Then a little bit of taxonomy okay. But uh, do you want to head over to a different part of the woods To yeah. try that out? Sure Ugh, Gotta keep moving we should have brought snowshoes. Oh, I know. The snow's deep enough for it. Oh yeah. But it's not deep enough for a subnibian zone. <laughs> not I yet. think you have to have about a foot and a half. If if I remember right. Alright. Whew, okay. In terms of mating, Cooper's hawks are monogamous, oh. meaning that they mate for life. Um twenty five percent breed the year after they're hatched. Which is kinda early. Well
1: that would be uh
0: Like a songbird. Yeah, Yeah. but that's what I mean. They actually uh, mature pretty quick. For a bird of prey. Yeah, yeah. And the majority breed the year after that. Uh, Mating pairs will breed once per year and raise one brood per breeding season. They'll begin breeding as early as March, and the female will usually lay four to five greenish-white to bluish eggs. But I'm unsure about that, because I've also read pale whitish eggs with brown Uh, spots. I don't know. I hear all these weird accounts of bird eggs (laughs) and i wonder
1: if it varies with you know locality
0: yeah yeah so the eggs hatch about a month after they're laid and then the young leave the nest about a month after that during incubation and the early stages of brooding the young the male does all the hunting uh, so he's going to bring food to both the female and the nestlings Um, and then both parents will provide the young food after they're out of the nest and until they're about eight weeks old cooper's hawks can live up to 12 years in the wild uh but a 1993 study actually found that their average age at death was 16.3 months so it's about a year and a quarter a year and a third Crazy. yeah um and i could see that making sense uh because the parents only really need to replace themselves and you're going to imagine that there's a lot of mortality for their young and actually a study from 2005 out of indiana found that over the winter Adult Cooper Hawk survival was 75.4%. That's pretty good. So about three-quarters of them survive the winter. Whereas juveniles, only 9.4% of them survive the winter. So for every 10 born, 9 die.
1: (laughs) A little over 9 die. (laughs)
0: Yeah. So uh these numbers correlate with winter survival of other adult occipiters, but it's actually kind of low for juvenile survival. So, uh, in this study, collisions and predation were the causes of mortality. Uh, Collisions were often into windows and automobiles. And actually, sometimes, the birds would hit windows because they mistook the reflections for prey. Uh, Uh, Yeah. I hate when that happens. (laughs) I know. Um, Owl predation was the major source of mortality for Cooper's Hawks in rural habitats. um, But they didn't really observe any owl predation or any predation in urban habitats for Cooper's Hawks.
1: But the mortality rate is still the same.
0: But they're still hitting windows. Oh. And, you know. yeah. and since we brought up the eggs earlier, uh, I want to mention that the Cooper's hawks were actually also affected by DDT, which thinned eggshells in other species, most notably uh, bald eagles. Right. Uh, Rachel Carson talked a lot about that in her book. Silent Spring. We're giving her a shout-out for free. <laughs> <laughs> she deserves it. <laughs> and uh, But since they banned it in 1972, uh, they've been recovering. And uh, today, the biggest threat to them is probably habitat loss, uh, potentially from logging. But in all honesty, I need to read more publications to see, you know, how... how, That's the safe answer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right. On to my favorite little bit. So I want to briefly talk about Taxonomy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not very much. I, mean, I, I just want to give people a sense of what, who their close relatives are. So the Cooper's hawk belongs to the Essepritidae. I cannot say the uh, hawk family very well. Uh, this family contains 67 genera and 233 species worldwide. And in North America, we only have 14 genera and 24 species. These birds are known colloquially as hawks, eagles, kites, harriers, and Old world vultures, uh, and just a quick note on old world vultures: uh, they're not like the turkey vulture or the black vulture here in North America. Um, those guys are actually in a separate family, uh, but they definitely share a resemblance with the new world well, vultures for sure. That. I
1: didn't know they were different.
0: Totally different family, yeah. Okay. So uh, the Cooper's hawk is in the Accipiter genus. Uh, this genus has 47 species worldwide, but only three in North America. That's the Cooper's hawk. Accipiter cooperii, the northern goshawk, Accipiter gentilis, and the sharp-shinned hawk, Accipiter striatus. Members of this genus are referred to as bird hawks because their prey is mostly birds. Makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. a pretty good name. So, uh, they're similar to beauty hawks? Uh, like the red-tailed, the broad-winged, and red-shouldered hawks, but they're more short-winged and long-tailed, like I was saying earlier. Yeah,
1: good field marks.
0: Yeah. They also have a more rapid wing bait, like I said. Uh, and-, and beautios, often you'll see them soaring on the wind, which yeah. is something you don't really see accipiters do all that no, much. No, they're just usually flying fast. And this is something that I generally like to skip, but, uh, but I thought th- it was a little interesting. Uh, the Cooper's hawk is named for William C. Cooper. Lived from 1798 to 1864. Uh, he's actually one of the founders of the New York Academy of Sciences. Oh. It wasn't called that when he started it, but that's what it is now. And uh, it is one of the oldest scientific societies in the United States. It was originally called Cooper's Coop. <laughs> no, <laughs> really. Is this seriously?
1: No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, I was like, that's
0: not what I read. It, was, it sounded much more official than that. <laughs> All right. So uh, in terms of what he did, the only thing that I saw that he described personally was the evening grosbeak. Wow. Well yeah, but he is the father of Dr. James C. Cooper, who's a noted Californian ornithologist. and uh, I think he's got a few papers out there, but uh, but I'm not overly familiar with his work. but apparently he's he's noteworthy enough to be in a <laughs> to be in a bird taxonomy book that I have. so all right. all right, I think now might be a good time to take a break, give our audience's ears a rest. <laughs> but I think maybe you're gonna take the lead now. Yes.
1: Yeah. so. in our last bonus episode. We made some tea, and Steve liked it so much, he wanted to make another kind of tea. Yeah. So, are we going to head over to the shelter? Yeah,
0: let's go to the shelter. All right.
1: So, as we're walking over to the shelter, I feel like I must point out that the reason I haven't done much talking so far is, as this is a bonus episode, and uh, it's the end of the semester, uh, this was Steve's idea, and he fostered this partnership with the other podcast. So, he did all the work for this one.
0: It was definitely a lot of late nights and early
1: mornings. (laughs) Well... We don't want to say uh, too much about what we have planned for the next episode, but we'll hope to have it out
0: this month, right? Oh, yeah. I think we can get it out by the end of the month. All right.
1: Well, as far as the tea goes, the last time we made some hemlock tea. And uh, if you want to hear about that, listen to the bonus episode on hemlock. But this time we are going to make a tea using two plants. Yeah. So I was out yesterday. I had one of the... uh, best experiences a teacher can have and that is a snow day <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> so when the snow came down i got the call yesterday morning dropped my daughter off at school went out for a hike and uh collected some rose hips uh multi rose hips and for more information on that what should people do
0: go to the multi rose episode <laughs> that's right do you know the number
1: <laughs> Multiflora blows I don't remember the number of it
0: I totally forgot the name of it Multiflora blows
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I collected some of those hips And then I also collected some uh, pine needles Now typically when I make rose hip and pine needle tea I use white pine and rose hips Mm. But I was driving home today Saying I gotta find some white pine needles Before we record And I didn't pass any white pines on the way home But I did pass some jack pines Oh, okay. So these, this is going to be jack pine and Rose
0: Hip tea. And jack pine has two needles. That's right. And they're a little twisted, mm-hmm. like how Jack Daniels gets you when you drink it. <laughs> Ooh, but we I... got a snowmobile. Huh? Oof. All right. That's going to mess with the audio. <laughs> yeah, that is going to mess with the audio, because it's going to be That's why we got to keep all of this in there. <laughs> and if you want to know how to make today's tea the wrong way you can listen to the last bonus episode (laughs) where bill made himself sick
1: (laughs) (laughs) i told the story the first time i made it on my own yeah didn't go so well nope (laughs) all right so i'm gonna take out my pots first and our favorite tool for boiling the jet foil yeah oh no what i forgot water (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh, All right, we're going to have to boil snow. Yeah, worse things have happened to better people. That's right. Yeah. Right. Oh, you don't even have to light yours. Your igniter still works. That's right. <laughs> I take care of my gear. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Maybe. Whoa. That was a fireball. <laughs> All right, the water's boiling. So I'm going to put in the ingredients. I have my Ziploc bag some of my rose hips. Oh, yeah. And you're keeping them right on the stalks. Yeah. Yeah. Don't have to rip them off. And then I'm going to put in some pine. Now, I usually don't take the needles off. I'm going to get some needles off if I can, but it's too cold. I don't want to take my gloves off. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to put those in. And then we should let that steep for about five to ten minutes.
0: Okay. All right. Okay. So I think now would be a good time to talk about the other person that contacted us for this episode. Yeah, so
1: Eric from Boxer Bar Energy Bars, uh, he got in touch with us via email and said he liked the podcast and he wanted to know if we were interested in trying out his product. And he sent us some of his bars, and we agreed to try them and give him a plug on air. Yeah. (laughs) So have you tried them yet?
0: No. I I wanted to wait for you. I (laughs) wanted to wait for this moment to try them. So this will be...
1: An actual taste test. Yeah. And are we going to give our actual honest reactions?
0: Yeah. Why wouldn't we?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I would hate to hurt anybody's feelings. You know what I mean?
0: (laughs) We spit them out.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So we should talk about the reason he contacted us specifically is because he liked what we do. He liked our vegan episode. And his bars, he started making his own product, started his own company, was because he felt the bars that were out there just weren't using ingredients that were up to his standard, weren't as environmentally conscious as he'd like them to be. So he said, why don't I start my own business and make the bars the way I think they should be made? Yeah. So they are vegan. Uh, They all use all whole foods. There's no refined sugars in here. So any of the sweeteners do come from the fruit, uh, from the actual ingredients rather than refined sugars. So. He does use really good ingredients. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the one I have in front of me now is Cinnamon Bunny, and that has uh, carrots and other spices. And then I also have Hot Date, which is dates and cayenne. But I feel like we should say, too, that uh, the one unique thing about these bars is one of the main ingredients is sprouted buckwheat. Yeah. So uh, good stuff all around. And then Steve has, in his pocket, buckwheat buzz. So that's coffee and chocolate. All of them sound really good. Yeah. <laughs> so we actually did think ahead when Steve gave them to me at the beginning of recording today. We put them in inside pockets. Yeah. <laughs> so we wouldn't be trying to gnaw on frozen energy bars. <laughs> uh-huh. All right, so we're so. going to try one at a time. All right. So I'm going to go for the hot date. Mm-hmm. Mm. All right. Here we go. Oh, I really like that. That is good. It's I like it because it's not overly sweet like some of those bars tend to be.
0: And the cayenne. It yeah. kicks in yeah. a little bit later. It's really good. I do. I like that one. All right. Nine grams of protein in there.
1: That cayenne's kind of really kicking in now.
0: Yeah. I'm actually, <laughs> it's going to interfere with some of these other flavors. <laughs> Normally, they're not designed to be eaten one after the next. <laughs> you no, know, we probably shouldn't tried that one last. I skipped dinner, though, mm. so I was thinking I a little bit. All right, so this is the cinnamon bunny. Oh, yeah. That should be good. Carrots and spices.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm.
0: I like that one. I really like the cayenne one, but I might like that one even more. And the last one. This is Buckwheat Buzz, coffee and chocolate. And one thing I do want to say about these is that the the wrapping is more of like a papery wrapping. Looks like it's biodegradable. Yeah, makes you feel good about eating them. <laughs> Definitely taste the coffee. I, I'm a sucker for coffee, though. I <laughs> eat, like, coffee ice cream. I, I have decaf coffee, black, all the time.
1: I'm just obsessed with the flavor. So I will say I'm biased because I am not a fan of coffee in, like, bars and cookies and yeah stuff like that and like i'm also not a fan of nuts and those kind of things so rank the bars what do you think oh definitely cinnamon bunny is the best in my opinion and then hot date and then the buckwheat
0: buds <sighs> i think we have i like all three but i think we agree exactly but i think i like my third pick more than you like your third pick <laughs> <laughs> but
1: they're all good mm-hmm. i wouldn't turn any down
0: if uh, someone offered them to me oh not yeah. for sure we'll have a link to his shop Right in the episode notes. You guys definitely check it out. Okay, now I think it's a good time to wash down those energy bars. Yeah, I think the tea's ready. Yeah. Alright, let's look. Looks ready.
1: Have some glasses here. So it doesn't have much color. Mm -mm. I can see a rose hip floating in that one. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. Here we go. Ready? Cheers. I taste the rose hips more than the pine, but Oh really? Yeah. Well, they complement each other nicely. Yeah, I think it's a pretty good tea. That's good. I think this one would probably be a little better with honey.
0: But oh, yeah. yeah. All right. That was well, good. Yeah. So now that we had some tea and ate some bars, let's talk about what the Cooper's Hawk eats. All right. So let's start walking. My feet are cold from sitting still for so long. Yeah, I think the temperature's dropped a little bit since we started. Yeah, it's not it's not 19 anymore. Yeah. No. <laughs> so the Cooper's Hawk, like we said earlier, mainly feeds on birds but they will also take small mammals, reptiles, and amphibians. Their short wings actually make them really good for maneuvering through dense forest habitats. Yeah. It's <laughs> really, watching them
1: move through a forest, through the trees, it's really an amazing thing. It's yeah, beautiful. and actually,
0: it, their ability to maneuver like that, it actually makes them pretty good at sneak attacks from, like, close-by hidden perches. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's, if,
1: you'll know, if you have bird feeders, that if you look outside and either you see birds frozen in place because you know there's a Cooper's or a Sharpie around, or you see an explosion of feathers. Yeah. That's uh, a Cooper's or a Sharpie getting something. Yeah. yeah.
0: You know what? Hiking makes you so thankful for when you're not hiking. I know, it's
1: true. <laughs> it's the same thing about camping, right?
0: Whew, all right. So back into the diet. So. A study out of Terre Haute, Indiana, found that Cooper's Hawks attempt surprise attacks, like I was just talking about, roughly as often as they try attacks where they're out in the open and totally exposed. And I thought this was interesting because Cooper's Hawks surprise attacks were successful 30% of the time. While their exposed attacks were only successful seven percent of the time, <laughs> but they're doing them fifty percent one, 50 percent the other. Why? I don't know. <laughs> that does not maybe, seem maybe like it's to a keep the birds on their feet or something. <laughs> oh, I don't that's know. That's true. <laughs> Some of the Cooper's hawks' favorite meals were bob whites, European starlings, red-winged blackbirds and eastern chipmunks and squirrels. Wow, mostly stuff we have a lot of. Yeah. (laughs) And prey size actually changes with the bird size. So, for example, a small male will attack smaller species than, let's say, large females. Sure. Yeah. So in Indiana, researchers found that Cooper's hawks went out of their way to attack mourning doves, uh, which I thought was interesting because the mourning doves were only 3% of the local abundance, but they made up 24% of the attacks. They really like morning They dust. really like them. <laughs> Whereas house sparrows were 13% of the relative abundance, but they were only attacked 1% of the time. Well, who'd want to eat a house sparrow? <laughs> you know, but I'm wondering if house sparrows were attacked so rarely because uh, when I read further into the study, they actually only had one male in the study. You know, the males are a little bit smaller. Maybe yeah. they if kind of had skewed more males, their findings. I- I'm
1: wondering yeah. if they did, but... If you um, had more males, they'd be going after more. Maybe possibly more sparrows because they're smaller.
0: Yeah, so the researchers thought that maybe small birds, any bird less than 70 grams, probably weren't worth hunting, uh, especially when larger birds were abundant or pretty abundant. They also found that flock size seemed to be important to how successful an attack was. Uh, So attacks tended to be most successful when flocks were smaller than five birds. Oh, really? Yeah. They like uh, stragglers, you know? Sometimes <laughs> stragglers all group together. <laughs> the three main prey species in this paper were European starling, mourning doves, and rock doves. And they very often were present in open lawns. And if you think in open lawn, that's a pretty safe area because they can't really do a sneak attack. Yeah. But they routinely occurred in areas with a bunch of obstructions and, you know, just stuff where a surprise attack would be pretty easy. <laughs> and and you have to think, like, why would a bird put itself in harm's way? Yeah. Well, uh, probably because maybe there was better feeding opportunities or there were some thermal advantages, which you have to imagine, what are we doing right now? Hiding from the wind? Yeah. (laughs) Well, for the mic's sake, but also a little bit for our sake. (laughs) And uh, so that could be a pretty significant thing for a bird who doesn't want to lose body heat in the winter. Yeah. And I think it's important to note that a species will act differently in different environments. And in the previous study out of Indiana, it seemed like Cooper's hawks loved morning doves. Like we said, they, they really went out of their way um, and avoided birds smaller than 70 grams like house sparrows. But in a 15-year study out of Victoria, British Columbia, that's the southwesternmost province in Canada, the study that was published in 2012, the researchers found that American robins, European starlings, and house sparrows made up 85% of the Cooper's hawks' diets, ah. which so in indiana they're avoiding them but up in british columbia that's the majority of the diet it's just yeah it's just it's (laughs) just a really fascinating thing
1: yeah local tastes
0: (laughs) yeah so there's a couple things that i think are important to take note of one if you remember from earlier i said western cooper's hawks were smaller than eastern populations and that smaller birds take smaller prey so maybe yeah because that's at pretty much as far west as you can go. <laughs> um, maybe they're smaller and they're taking smaller birds, so maybe that's something we're seeing. The researchers were not pointing that out. I, I was just thinking about that as I was reading. Um, and number two, that the European starling and house sparrows are introduced species. And these species together, these two species, made up more than half of the identified prey items. So, that's kind of interesting. That means th- there's something going on right now that historically has not really been the case in terms of the, the feeding habits of the Cooper's Hawks. Yeah, those species didn't co-evolve together. So, uh, this study also found that there was a temporal shift in the age of prey that was consumed. So, between March and April, the Cooper's Hawks ate adult birds and sub-adult mammals. And then from late May until the end of the breeding season, Cooper's Hawks ate young-of-the-year birds, uh, which actually, that made up between 70 and 100% of their identifiable Whoa. prey items. So... yeah. There's They're a big switch. youngsters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in the study, they found that for the most part, mammals weren't really consequential. There wasn't really an important part of the diet, except for a few sites uh, where there was European rabbit, and that occurred right near the University of Victoria campus uh, in British Columbia. So, I don't know, maybe when rabbits are available, <laughs> they really like those. <laughs>
1: Wow, I didn't know Cooper's hawk ate rabbits.
0: Yeah, he of It seems like that. rabbits would just be too big for them. Okay, the last thing that I want to touch on is nest predation. Uh, and I want to talk about it because Cooper hawk eggs and nestlings are vulnerable to raccoons and crows. So they're affected by nest predation, but sure. also Cooper's hawks partake in nest predation themselves. Um, so there was a study from 2011 in biological conservation that used video cameras to observe nest predation of the northern mockingbird, uh, Mimis polyglottos. Uh, polyglottos, Many words, many... Yeah, because yeah. they have a lot of phrases that they <laughs> say. yeah. <laughs> and they were looking at northern mockingbirds in urban and non-urban environments in Florida. And the reason I keep jumping all over the place with these studies is because, like I was saying in the very beginning of the episode, their range is big. <laughs> and, and you got to look at studies from all over the place. And this study was looking at the urban nest predator paradox, which points out that even though nest predator abundance is often higher in urban areas, nest predation rates are often lower. And this may be explained by the loss of important nest predators in urban habitats, prey switching of urban predators, or successful nest defense against avian nest predators. Now... This study found that urban nest predation rates were not lower than non-urban nest predation rates. They also found that there were plenty of urban nest predators in urban habitats. So there wasn't a loss of, of nest predators. We don't have to worry about that. They also found that in urban habitats, cats, house cats, were responsible for over 70% of nest predation events. Oh, yeah. Man. Whereas in non-urban environments, Cooper's hawks were the most frequent nest predator at 45% of the time. But because cooper's hawks act differently in urban and non-urban environments, the thought is that cooper's hawks likely experienced prey switching in urban environments, which I think is really interesting. Uh, And the authors suggest that nest predators, like cooper's hawks, fill different predator roles, possibly due to the trophic structure of the community or the nest defense behavior of the prey. But there needs to be further research in that area before we have any definitive answers. Um, Of course. (laughs) I kept finding that with Cooper's Hawks more severely in Cooper's Hawks than I have in most of the episodes that we researched. Oh, okay. Yeah. There was also indirect evidence of effective nest defense, since there was a lack of nest predation by crows, blue jays, and grackles, which were all aggressively attacked by mockingbirds. (laughs) Um, Regardless, the cats, uh, you know, were residential cats, (laughs) and they really like to attack bird nests at night. So, come on, just... Please keep, keep your cats inside. <laughs> Please. <laughs> There's actually some pretty cool YouTube videos where someone put, like, I say cool, but uh, really destructive and eye-opening, where they put, like, a GoPro on their cat, uh. and uh, and they actually saw what their cat did in the, during the day or at night. Well, you know, I didn't know where they were. Yeah. Now, this was an interesting study, but the authors wanted to be very clear that they were only talking about nest predation in terms of mockingbirds. So maybe the next steps that they suggested was maybe finding a sweet of nest predation in terms of different species that, right. that are being attacked. Yeah, because they just look at predation on one species. Yeah. That's one very small aspect of
1: that system.
0: And we see some interesting things when we just look at individual species, but sure. if we want to get a bigger picture, we really got to look at a whole suite. Yeah. Okay, guys, I think that's where we have to call the episode because I think our <laughs> limbs are about to fall off. We are cold. <laughs> <laughs> so we hope you enjoyed the episode. And now that you've brushed up on Cooper's hawks, Click the link in the episode notes and head on over to the Urban Wildlife Podcast to hear about red tail hawks in Philadelphia. It's a great and it, city. Yeah, and it actually turns out that they saw a couple Cooper's hawks while they were out. What? Yep, and they did better than us. Oh. <laughs> so we want to thank those guys for teaming up with us like this, and make sure you rate and review their podcast as well. So now it's time to wrap up. First and foremost, we'd like to thank our new patrons. Julie, Eugenia, and Jennifer, thank you so much. And as always, a special thanks goes out to our top patrons, Alyssa, Rob, we name the dog Indy, Bethany, Matt, and especially Scott, Ken, Diane, and Morgan. Thank you guys so thank much. Um, and we also want to thank our new five star reviewers, Bulldog015 and JulieDD. Thank you guys. And keep those reviews coming, it really helps us get the word out to more people.
1: All right, and this next one, this has been a long time coming. When Steve and I first mentioned Patreon on our Valcour Island episode, we said that we would be using 10% of our donations to help environmental causes on Kiva.com. We decided that our best option was giving $50 in interest-free microloans to maintaining restored native pine forest in Michoacan, Mexico. So all of you who have donated through Patreon. Thank you for making that happen. Our plan is to keep circulating the loans in Kiva and never actually keep any of that money. If we eventually decide Kiva isn't for us, we'll pull you guys on what environmental cause to donate the money to.
0: And we also want to say that we don't keep the remaining 90% of what we make. (laughs) Yeah, Bill and I actually have it deposited into a separate account that we use for paying for the website. Buying new equipment, which you should hear next episode. We'll give some thanks uh, during that episode. Yeah, (laughs) And we also use it for promoting episodes. Right. So if you guys have any of your own questions, comments, or episode suggestions, send us an email at thefieldguides at gmail.com. And don't forget to email us some questions for our Ask Us Anything
1: bonus episode that we're doing because we got to the 25 written reviews goal. Thank you, folks.
0: So visit us on Instagram at Podcast follow us on twitter at field guides pod like and follow us on facebook and visit our website at thefieldguidespodcast.com if you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast you can do so on patreon.com forward slash the field guides but if you're like us and you can't afford to financially support a podcast
1: right now there are other ways you can help out you can share our episode with friends or rate us and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It really helps to get the word out to more people. And make sure to check
0: out Always Wandering Art and Boxer Bar Energy Bars. Thanks for listening, folks, and we'll see you next time. We'll see you then.
1: Hey, am I crazy, or did you use one of those studies in the, uh, the, the Feed the Birds episode? It sounded familiar.
0: Maybe they won't notice. <laughs>